Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Reske. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Let's um, bridge that to Thessalonians, and let's bridge it to the Apostle Paul. Don't you think the Apostle Paul, of all people, understood this more than maybe we even understand it? Because of his background, he was like the least likely person to become this great apostle because of his former life. It's pretty amazing, but you you see, there's a Three times in the book of Acts where Paul's testimony is shared and about his story about uh, on the road to Damascus. And each time you get a little bit more information. But in the final one, it says where God says to Paul, 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 why do you kick against the goads? And what a goad was, was like a six to nine foot long stick that they could reach the lamb and pull it so that it didn't kick you while you were trying to move it. And God was saying to Paul, Paul, I've been... I've been moving you. I've been working in you for a long time. Paul grew up not just as a Jew, but he grew up in Tarsus. And um, Tarsus was one of the leading Greek uh, universities outside of Athens in the world. So he would have grown up in a place that understood Greek. It had a Roman garrison in it. So he would have understood the Romans. But he was so his parents were so committed that they sent him as a, as a young man and as a teenager back to Jerusalem to study under one of the two great teachers, Gamaliel. And so he would have grown up, and the way Gamaliel taught was you would debate with him every day. So Paul grew up learning to debate, but he grew up among the top and the elite. Uh, 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 he was going to be one of the key lawyers in the country, uh, debating law and and. and um, yeah, I mean, he was set up. He, he would have gone to the Harvard of, of, um, of Jerusalem. And so he grew up as a strict Jew, understanding it all, but also understanding other cultures. So for Paul to finally give up fighting and saying, no, I surrender to Jesus, that would have been incredible. Um, and that's why God said, I, you're kicking against the goat. I've been trying to move you this direction. Quit fighting me. Um, so I, I don't know if that's what you're hoping to get, Greg, but yeah. Well, that and a lot, that, that was excellent. But also along with the idea that he was, he was persecuting Christians. He was, he wanted to put the death Christians. I mean, he was, he, he, he was opposed to Jesus, like, he wanted to stamp out um, this movement, and uh, and then God intervened. And so my point is that he is like the least likely person um, to, or or I should say, he he understood this whole idea of of gospel driven sanctification. He understood that uh, you know what Jesus had done for him. And it comes out in his letters, like you mentioned, uh, Jim, how many times he mentions the word gospel. And uh, 
So let's that was great. Let's uh let's dive into First Thessalonians. What are some of the themes that you guys see here? There's there's obviously the theme the theme of uh the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. I heard uh that it's in you can find it in every chapter of the book of First Thessalonians. Almost every chapter ends with a reference to the return of Christ. So what do you guys know about the issue that was going on that made him mention that so, so many times? Yeah, it's good to look back and think about, like, this is a time when people just didn't have any kind of systematic theology of Christianity or didn't understand all these kind of things that, you know, we used to have 2,000 years to kind of debate these issues and thrash them out and think about all the different, uh, all the different angles. But I think, and I'm trying to flip to it now, there are some people who were, who had died and um, people were thinking, wait a second, I heard Jesus is coming back and now I'm worried that so-and-so that I know who's died might miss it, might miss out on the whole thing. And so Paul's got to give them assurance and said, well, don't worry that they're going to participate in it as well. And they're not going to miss a thing. The early church also on the opposite side of that was also dropping out of society, waiting for the eminent return of Jesus any moment. And so, um, and we know that's still to come, but, um, you know, Paul was warning, one, you're not going to miss it, but two, uh, don't drop out of everything. You know, you still need to, to be involved. Well, that's right. And those, those kind of themes are both together in chapter four, because um, the part I was thinking about is chapter four, verse 13, where he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, which is, you know, um, a theme unto itself. All the, if you're the irreligious of the world, the people who serve, it was the secular world that have no hope about the afterlife or seeing loved ones again. But, but he says, we don't want you to be like that. We don't want you to grieve. And he says, since Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Uh, and I'm in chapter four, verse 15. For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive, and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, Randy, I, want to, I just want to read that. And I want to come back, though, to your theme as well, because it's the other thing about people just like sitting around and say, well, God, in that case, I'll just sit around and wait. That's kind of right before that they were idle and not working, um, and so uh, I want and I, I want to really want to spend some time on that theme as well. But uh, thanks for indulging me. I do, I wanted to read these verses out loud because they are so encouraging. And we, we could there's so many different views on the end times. There's views on uh, the tribulation and rapture and all those types of things. When I was a young Christian, I used to, spend, used to spend a lot of time thinking about those things and wondering about it. And and I realized it wasn't I wasn't I was curious about those things, trying to figure them out, and wasn't really um, doing anything for my spiritual life and leading me closer to God or um, doing anything for my faith. And so, uh, and I, I just kind of like the way he puts it here. He's not trying to explain exactly everything about it, how it's all going to work step by step. He's not trying to give you a, that kind of roadmap. He's just trying to say, look, you don't have to worry about that. And uh, um, the, uh, first of all, you don't have to worry that people who have died are going to miss it. Um, but the key here is, I think, in the, uh, verse 17 in chapter 4, 
when he says, uh, talks about, you know, meeting the, uh, meeting the people who have uh, risen up for Christ, meeting them in the clouds, in the air. The last part of that verse says, and so we will always be with the Lord. And the key there is, no matter what your view of the end time is, no matter what happens with the tribulation and rapture, all that stuff, we will be with the Lord. And then he says, therefore, encourage one another with those words. And I think it's all meant to be an encouragement. It's just like, this is supposed to encourage you in your faith and not lead to some kind of controversies and debates. This theme so, is, this is a big, this is a big theme. And I just uh, real quickly want to uh, call attention to it in chapter one, verse 10. Um, in the context, he says, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So there's the first mention of the second coming. And then if you go to the end of chapter two, you see, he says, for what is our hope, our joy, or our crown in which we were glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. But he talks about when he comes, when Jesus comes back. And then in chapter three, he says in verse 13, may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our of, of God and our Father when the Lord Jesus comes with his holy ones. So this this theme of the second coming is uh, is definitely prevalent. Um, Randy, what was the comment you wanted to make? Well, thank you. I, I was just going to say, um, and Jimmy brought this up, but one of the other major things here is the idea of hope. Yes. And I think that's linked with a couple of things here, but one with this, with the second coming, that that's our blessed hope, as Scripture says. And so um, when we have the gospel, we always have hope uh, as followers of Christ. We always have hope. And I love the fact that uh, if, if we die, we get to be with the Lord. Mm -hmm. If we're persecuted, we get rewards from God. If we don't and we stay here, we get to, to be in the community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have no, we win in every scenario. And That's so right. we always have hope. And um, he talks a lot about hope. Uh, again, I think our hope is in Christ and his return. But this church was born in persecution. And, um, you know, a lot of times in the West, we don't think about persecution as much right now. And I don't know where the statistic came from, but I was told that more people have been martyred in the last 100 years uh, than the prior 1900 years before. Wow, is that right? And um, for Christ, yeah, in, in countries all over, some of the countries maybe where there are listeners and people listening to this. And so Paul's writing to a, a church that he had to flee because of persecution. Wow. And there are brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that are dealing with persecution today. And I guess I was thinking in Paul's thing about hope, that we have hope. And so uh, I just want to encourage folks, no matter where you're at in your life, that if we focus on Christ, there is always hope. The gospel addict, it, it's because we, we do have hope in the gospel. Amen. That's a good, that's a good word. Yeah. Someone might be listening that uh, 
is is enduring persecution and this is a great this is a great book of the bible to meditate on um if you are going through um hard times because uh jesus jesus is our hope you know just to kind of emphasize that in chapter one he talks about paul talks about hope in verse three remembering before our god and father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our lord jesus christ it's actually faith hope and love in chapter one and then in chapter five he returns to that and this is chapter five verse eight but since we belong to the day let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for helmet the hope of salvation so he starts by talking about faith hope and love but he returns to in chapter five faith hope and love and in that verse we just read in the middle he talks about the people who are who don't have christ who have no hope what a contrast that is mm. so what a when we talk about the word hope in the english language we it it is it's different in the, when the bible speaks of hope it's different than the way we use it uh typically in english uh language like we say things like i hope it doesn't rain tomorrow um we we use it in like uncertain terms but when the bible speaks of hope it's a certainty it's 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 these are certain things that are going to happen and so um we're not you know jesus is going to come back that's a that's a that's a certainty that's a promise that he gave so i think it's just important that for our English listeners to just distinguish because we use the word hope we throw it around a lot like yeah. gee I hope this doesn't happen or I hope this but um whenever you read the word hope in the Bible know that it means a certainty that's going to take place wow well yeah that's radically different Greg thanks for pointing that out what what else is standing out to you guys from these from this uh book well, I want to go back to this whole deal that um, Randy talked about in chapter four um, uh, about works. I've always loved this verse, chapter 11, and I, I don't want to take out of context. We'll go back and talk about the context in a second. But he says, you aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And um, it comes up again, actually, in Second Thessalonians, in a longer passage, which we can get to in a minute, about the the whole the whole point that you you cannot be idle. You're supposed to work hard in the Christian life. And this comes up in the when he's kind of so he talks about the, the gospel uh, in the first couple of chapters, and he talks about uh, the second coming of Christ and our, our hope, the things we talked about, and now the in chapter four talking about kind of practicalities of Christian living, sanctification, and the first one is abstaining from sexual morality. In chapter four, um, verse four, uh, and then in verse nine, he kind of turns a corner in a new paragraph and says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So there's love, right? Remember, you have to talk about faith, hope, and love. There's love. Then in verse 10, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. For we urge you, brothers, to do this, do this more and more, which is what? This is love the brothers. And then verse 11, the verse I read before, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And so one of the points of this is that the way you're loving people, the way you're loving people is not to be a burden on others, it's just to work. 
and it's just is to work and, and to and to produce and work hard and that is how you're going to show love for each other right so um so greg i think when i when i end up uh talking about this in a couple of weeks at our bible study i want to probably focus on this theme of work and the christian views of work and actually dug up some notes in 2008 i spoke with you in your college ministry and a whole little talk i i gave on uh, the whole concept of work and the christian views of work um because it's um fascinating to me and we, and it, and maybe we could linger on this topic for a minute because both of you are in full-time Christian ministry and I'm, I'm just a lay person. I have a full-time job. Um, and, uh, I, um, and, and I, th I think about this whole idea of the Christian view of work and a couple different Christian views of work. And one is that work is, work is completely worthless. Work is worthless. Whatever you're doing out there in those tall buildings downtown, it is just whatever it is, it's worthless. The only thing that's going to matter is the word of God and people. That's, that's the only thing that matters. Everything else you're doing whatever you're doing in your industry, whatever, whatever, it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. And the only thing that matters is the word of God and people. So the only thing that really matters is full-time Christian work. So in that view, you guys are the worthwhile ones. What I do for a living is, is, is worthless, right? There's another Christian view, kind of the middle ground that says, your work is fine. It's like tolerable. As long as what you're doing at work is witnessing the people at the office. So you're, you have a job as an evangelistic outreach, see? So you can leave a Bible on your desk or, you know, tract or something and share the gospel. So the work is, a, I guess it's not, it's not evil. We'll tolerate it in Christian circles, but it's not, it's not really good. It's just, it's, it's tolerable as long as you're using it uh, for the gospel. Oh, oh, and make money so that you can give it to people who are in Christian ministry and full-time Christian work, right? So it's, it's useful for those two things, right? But it's kind of, the, the work itself is still, still kind of worthless in that view. It's just instrumental to something else, giving and witnessing. And then that, the third view is that the work itself is actually worthwhile. The work itself is actually doing something that God wants to have, ha to have happen. And I, I, when I talked about this in 2008 with your ministry, Greg, I kind of dwelled on that and went down that, that rabbit hole and talked about it. And I'll probably do that again this time because it's, it's a different Christian view of work. It comes from, from a lot of Luther's view of work, um, kind of the reform, uh, Reformation view of work. And uh, uh, his view of the, because uh, he was dealing at a time when there was like the idea of the priests were doing the, the, the worthwhile work and no one else was. And the whole idea of the Protestant view of the priesthood of all believers, Luther went on for, you know, really, really uh, developed this whole idea that, um, how's the story go? He would say, uh, if you say, I want God to love me by producing milk and giving milk. He said, well, how is God going to do that for you? There's a milkmaid out there somewhere milking a cow that's going to produce that for you. So you say, oh, God, give me some milk. They say, that's, that's how it's happening. Someone's working to get you that milk. You say, if only God would give me bread. How is God going to give you bread? Well, there's a farmer out there plowing the fields, harvesting the wheat. Someone is working to give you that. And his point is kind of like this, 1 Thessalonians 4. How you are showing love to each other is the interconnectedness of the world through work and serving each other. Also, this work is making a contribution and is the hand of God to other people and is the way you're showing the brotherly love. So... It's a different, and, and, and there's, there's probably 10 different view, other views of work. I just narrowed it down to those three that I'm familiar with that I think about. Um, but it's a different conceptualization of work that says the actual, the substance itself of what you're doing is worthwhile. Now you could add, you have to qualify that. You say, well, if my, my job is, if your job is dealing drugs, okay, then that, okay, that's not worthwhile, right? And that's, it's illegal and you should stop that because that's not, that's not, worthwhile that's not doing things and there and there are probably gradations of what is worthwhile in this world if you're you know doing some 
different things that are more worthwhile than others, right? But uh, Luther's view is that all work, as long as it's not illegal, not really detrimental, all work is from you know, digging ditches and sweeping floors to other high-minded work in the university. It's all God, God's work. It's all, um, it's, it, it's intrinsically valuable, not just instrumental to something else. Well, I think that's I think that's true. I think that's biblical because even before man fell, God gave Adam a job. Oh, right. Cultivate the garden. Yeah. And take care of the animals, name the animals. He had a job. And so work is not something I think sometimes we have this feeling Christians especially have this idea that, well, work is something that came after the fall and and it's all sweat and you know we never find full satisfaction in it and that kind of thing i liked i liked your three ideas i did i did have the question i wonder if there's more than three probably are views views of work but randy do you have any thoughts on on what well, uh colossians 323 whatever you do work at it with all your heart is working for the lord not for men and i'm just thinking we're, we're commanded here whatever you do to work at it with all your heart. And I think, yeah, work is holy. And um, if you want a great book, there's a, there's a book by a friend of mine named John Beckett, and the book is called Loving Monday. And mm. the whole idea is that your job and your profession and your work that most people give most their time to, you don't do a job so you can do your ministry. Our life is our ministry. Yeah. And so, um, you know, if that was a case, then most of us would be wasting most of our day. But his whole concept was, you know, if you approach your job as this is a ministry to the Lord, you get up loving Monday. I get to go up to work today and serve Christ at work. Right. And, um, you know, I, I by my doing this job, I provide jobs for other people. And by my doing this job, I can honor Jesus wherever I'm at. And so, yeah, it's a great book if you ever want to, uh, on, on this very topic that we're talking about right now. Say the uh, title and the author again for our listeners. The author, it's on InterVarsity Press. It's John Beckett. And the name of the book is called Loving Monday. Loving Monday. Yeah, because most people, and most people, the, the general idea is people don't like Mondays, right? Because they got to go back to work. Right. Um, that's why, like, well, let me just say, Jim, one of the reasons I, I loved having you come and speak to our group, and one of the reasons I, I, I chose to have you come so many times is because you represent what most of them are going to do. Most of them, they're not, all, you know, we'd have like 100, 150 students at the meetings, and I knew that most of them are going to, they're going to be in the working world. They're going to be architects. They're going to be businessmen and women and nurses and so for you know i could easily just speak to them from a from a, a uh, speak to them every week you know because it's my job or, or my ministry but i loved having guys like you come in because to, for them to see somebody who um wants to make a difference in their job you know doing their job and and just that perspective i think is is so good because i think we there is sort of this feeling that like you're um, I hate it when you, we fall into this trap of like there's a class Christians 
And then there's okay. B-class Christians. Right, and if right. you're an A-class Christian, you know, you're a missionary, you're a pastor, you're a full-time Christian worker. But if you're a, an architect and you're a Christian, you're kind of like in the B-class, like, no, 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 I don't think that's 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 it at all. Yeah. Um, so I I just loved, uh, you, you know, th that's one of, one of the reasons I was so excited to have you come and share and speak. And I think this is an important topic. Um, now let's get back to the context of the Thessalonians. Why were they not working? Was it because they were sitting around thinking that Jesus was coming back? That's the impression that I seem to get. Is that what you guys are getting? Randy, it sounded like you were thinking the same thing, because it's kind of juxtaposed with the talk of the end times, right? Or Randy, you're on mute. Sorry, I keep doing that. I'm sorry. I do know, I, I don't know about here necessarily, Greg, but I do know in the early church, I remember the, the concept that um, as they thought about the second coming, you know, they, they really anticipated it to be any day. And so, um, yeah, there were stories of people quitting their jobs. And obviously they've asked Paul about this topic because some of them must be struggling with this. Like, what's our proper response to do be? And I think for us, it's we're prepared for the imminent return of Jesus. It's going to happen, but none of us know when. And so we live our lives with that hope. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that, I think the two things we talked about, one was uh, that you don't miss out on this. Um, and two, you don't, put your life on hold and your children have no food because you quit your jobs and you're standing on a mountaintop looking at the sky, that that's also not the proper response. You know, I think that's true. And I think because it's juxtaposed this whole idea of the second coming, I think that's a real likely cause. Um, one of the other commentaries I read just talked about people just living off the largesse of generous Christians in their community. And you think about, you know, this is Thessalonica, okay? It's not what happened in Jerusalem in the book of uh, early, uh, in, um, in the book of Acts, when people kind of had more communal living, there's people selling their, selling their property and everyone living together. But you could see that if that Christian community is developing that way, eventually there's some people that, you know, they become freeloaders. They say, this is great. <laughs> this is great. Someone else sell their stuff and I get to eat for free. And they're just, you know, the human nature being what it is, people, you know, they, they, there's a free rider tendency where people try to say, I can slack. I don't have to do this. You guys do this. This is wonderful. Keep keep it coming. And um, and and Paul, it's not entirely clear exactly what drove them to be idle, but the the message is clear. You're not supposed to be that way. You know, it's 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 pretty clear. And then we could all maybe look at the other passage in Second Thessalonians as well, because it's it's um, I think that's where he says if a, if a, a person does not work, neither should they eat. I mean, you should you you got to be pulling your own weight and. Um, you know, and there's, I think, in Christian history, a long tradition of that kind of hard work and work ethic uh, that comes out of that because, you know, we're not supposed to be free freeloaders, free riders, uh, slackers um, in the Christian life. It's a, um, not what God intended. It's not our witness. What do you think is the current view among Christians about work? Randy, what do you think? Of the three views that Jim mentioned, what do you think the prevailing one is? Well, 
I think there's a, I think sometimes there's a difference that we intellectually would say we agree with number three, that it's holy, that we know it's, we're called to do that for the Lord, but we live like we believe number one, that, uh, that I just get through my job. I don't want to, so I can go do other things I want to do, like ministry, like so I, I think there may be a disconnect there almost for some of us that, um, yeah, I may intellectually agree with that, but I don't live that necessarily. So. You know, there can be, since you just when you use the word disconnect and it jogs something in my memory and it, I have listened to, you talking about books. Uh, I, 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 there's one book I have from uh, Tim Keller, Every Good Endeavor. It's also about the Christian view of work. And it's, uh, he has some, uh, sermons. I think the book is taken from the sermons on First Thessalonians as well. Um, but um, that that notion of like uh, the 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 first view. You think in Christian circles you could be this way. This is what Luther is talking about with the, the priest who was elevated, and they were looking down their nose at people in secular professions, right? And you can see in Christian circles today, maybe that's a problem. People say this Christian work is worthwhile, but your work is not worthwhile. But there can be a problem. People that are completely secular, somebody who says, I am a doctor, but I'm a doctor purely for the money. I really don't care about patients. I don't care about the substance I'm doing. I'm doing it in extrinsically. I'm doing instrumentally, get something else out of it. I want a fancy car and I want a good living. And like, and, or I want status or I want, or I want self-definition. If I am a, a doctor, lawyer, some kind of profession, I'm a successful, it's not just those professions, a successful actor successful author, then, then people will recognize me, my life will feel worthwhile, I'll be vindicated, you get this self-definition and purpose out of it, and, and then you're turning those things into idols and becoming slaves to those things. This is completely outside of the Christian experience of the Christian world, right? This is just a secular problem. If you say it's an unhealthy view of work, but it plagues Christians and non-Christians alike. And in, in the point, I think that one point Keller brings out when he talks about this is, you know, in Christ, if you say, look, my identity is secure in him. I, he's given me everything. I love Greg back to you. It's not due. It's done. It's all done. Therefore, if I'm a doctor, I don't need to, I don't need this profession to define myself, to give me status, to make my life worthwhile. God gave me all those things already through Christ. Therefore, I can practice medicine and just serve people. And if I'm a lawyer or a banker or dig ditches for a living, you know, I'm a construction worker and I could say, this is not defining me and who I am. I'm not, I'm not just making a paycheck to work for the weekends. I can do this for the Lord because he's already blessed me with it in, the, in the heavenly places. He's already, my standing in him is complete, is complete and I can rest in that completely. And therefore I can actually enjoy my job. And back to that verse you said in class, I can do it for the Lord, not for men, because I'm not, I don't need it to feel good about myself or just to get the paycheck. I can just do it because I'm serving him, whatever it is. Whatever it is. Anyway, those the, some thoughts from. Uh, uh, she, I should give our listeners the name of the Keller sermons so they could they could get it because he has a good really good sermon on First Thessalonians four. That's good. Well, um, I feel like we probably need to kind of wrap this up for for now at least. Are there any other themes worth mentioning?
I think that's I think that's good enough for now, Greg. We should just wrap up. Yeah. Randy, did you say anything else you thought in first and second or second Thessalonians you want to mention? No, I don't think so. I think that's what I was thinking is um, we, we hit all the ones that I had thought, thought about beforehand. So, yeah. Well, let's let's kind of close with some, uh, you know, the, you know, the economy of words uh, that Paul, the way he writes is just amazing. I mean, if you look at First Thessalonians, chapter five, verses 16, um, you know, 16 to 18 or 19 he says be joyful always pray continually give thanks in all circumstances for this is god's will for you in christ jesus do not put out the spirit's fire do not treat prophecies with contempt test everything and hold on to the good avoid every kind of evil it's just kind of interesting you can just hear him like just pouring out his heart for the thessalonians just kind of he wants to give them like little golden nuggets like, you know, that pray continually, man, that's a challenging verse. That's challenged me my whole Christian life. What does that look like? How do you experience that? I want to know what that's, what that's about. Um, give thanks in all circumstances. Boy, that's a tough one too, because I can give thanks in a lot of circumstances, but there's some circumstances that are really, really hard to give thanks for. Be joyful always. Um, I mean, just so many, so much powerful um, and these are almost like commands, but it's all in light of the gospel, all in light of what Jesus has done for them. You know, again, he's pointing them to the cross and he's saying, because of the cross, you can be joyful always. Because of Jesus, you can pray continually. Because of Jesus, you can give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He also talks about God's will. That was one thing that we didn't mention and how, um, and how important the area of sexuality is when it comes to God's will, sexual oh, purity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And boy, that's a challenging one in today's culture, isn't it? It's a huge. And we, we, you're right, we didn't really dwell on it. Um, but for, um, you know, for 2,000 years, a hallmark of Christians everywhere, a distinguishing feature of Christians everywhere has been sexual purity. And... Um, it's funny, I just, I just, I just thinking that every generation thinks they just, they're discovering sex for the first time and, and the older generation doesn't know about it, but it's, it's, it's been around forever, right? <laughs> right? And, and like, um, but as you know, Christians for 2000 years, it, 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 again, this comes from one of Keller's sermons, but he's, he talks about how there's some, uh, some writing in some uh, secular uh, historian at the time, maybe it was Roman historian, it said, these Christians, they share their money with everyone and they share their bed with no one and they were upset because they said we romans are exact opposite <laughs> we don't share money with anybody we share a bed with everybody and these christians were distinctive they were known for this they're generous with their money and absolutely devoted to sexual purity it's such a hallmark you're right Greg. we didn't really know that um but look if you want to, if, to wrap up greg could you just read you started reading and i'm so excited for these verses could you just read 23 and 24 maybe that's a good way to kind of wrap up Oh man, I just uh, let me find it. Randy, do you have it? Chapter five, verse twenty-three and twenty-four. Um, not right in front. Of I got me. it. I got it. I got it. Uh, may the God, may God Himself, 
the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So just to wrap up on this, kind of going back to where we started, where the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life, not just the ABC of the Christian life, not, not gospel starting you off and then you sanctify yourself. This is so great and so clear. And he's saying the God of peace himself will sanctify you completely. He's the one sanctifying you. He will, and then in verse 24, God is faithful. He will surely do it. He's the one sanctifying us. Praise the Lord through the gospel. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.